Hello everyone and welcome to That's a Dumb Rule Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Greg. Greg, today we have, well, a surprise list for me. I'm excited to go through this with you. Sure. You compiled a few of the common differences between the NCAA and NBA when it comes to their regulated basketball games. Yes. So I obviously watch both and, yeah. and I know some of the main differences between the two, but I didn't know there were this many. Yeah, there's quite a few yeah. and the history is really deep. And there's many figures in this history of how the games came to be, the way they are. But I like this list that you compounded, and I thought I would take your job here, read off some of these rules, maybe explain them a little bit. Sounds good. And then you prompt some questions. All right. Awesome. Well, let's start with the very basic. It's the game time itself. In the NCAA, regulation games run for a total of 40 minutes split into two 20-minute halves. Overtime periods are five minutes long. Okay. So one and then the other quarter, or one and then the other half. Right. In the NBA, regulation games run for a total of 48 minutes. So an extra eight there, hmm. split into four 12-minute quarters. Overtime periods are five minutes long. Okay. So just right off the bat, that extra eight minutes seems kind of funny, and then you split it instead of two into four. Right. The thing that I've always heard now, I don't know this to be true, but is that the NBA loves a buzzer beater. And if you can get an extra one in there, oh, that's awesome for TV. Okay. Now, there could be a couple other reasons, but more times than not, when you see an NBA highlight, it's a buzzer beater at the end of the second or third quarter going into the fourth. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know Which that. is really funny to hear yeah. about. But yeah, they just kind of stretched it out too a little bit more. Uh, I believe it was in the 60s and some of the 50s, the Atlanta Hawks that had Bob Pettit wanted to figure out what the right amount of time was per game. And the ideal amount was 120 possessions, so around 60 possessions per team. Okay. And they found out through a bunch of mathematical oh. math, basically, math is my answer, right. <laughs> 24 seconds per possession plus the 60 gives you around 120 possessions, which would give you 48 minutes okay, of game time. Okay, that's where they came up with that. Yeah, it okay. came up with an ideal amount of time to score and get to the score that they want a professional game to be versus a college-level game. Okay, so let me ask you a couple questions. Fire away. First one is, do most players play all 48 minutes, or is that rare? No. Okay. Um, it doesn't happen that often. I think like if you're talking about like bell cow players like Giannis Antetokounmpo, Mm -hmm. um, in the playoffs, he might play 36 minutes to 43 minutes a game. Okay. But most players, like your stars, are going to be playing between 32 and 36 minutes oh, a game. Oh, wow. Okay. And then your role players are going to be between 20 and 28. And then I would say your bench guys are playing around 15 to 10. Um, so they divide it up and they split those amongst the 48 minutes per position. And then they figure out when the playoffs hit, you're probably on a rotation of if you're lucky, seven to eight guys, but most of the time you're only playing seven players. Okay, and then when so if a if a star player only plays, let's say, thirty six minutes of the forty eight, yeah, are they always sitting around the same like always at the start of the fourth quarter they rest or is it whenever they yeah. need a rest or how does that coaches work? try to rotate guys in and out at the same time? For example, the Warriors that just won a title right now, they're infamous for having the best three. The third, the best third quarter offense ever. Okay. So they're at their best coming out of halftime 
playing in the third quarter. Okay. So they try to rest Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, all of these guys going into the break to oh, give them that extra juice. Okay. Or they'll rotate their defenders in at weird reps. So this past year, and forgive me, I'm like trying to remember game tape mm-hmm. as I'm talking, but Gary Payton Jr., Kaminga, Mooney, I mean, even Wiggins got in there too for great sure. defenders. Yeah. They try to rotate them at a rep where they can always have at least two good defenders on the court and they're not having more than that. Okay. Because they want to maintain that flexibility on offense. So coaches come in with a game plan of how they want to rotate players in and out. Uh-huh. Um, but there's been games I've watched, like Kobe Bryant played all 48 minutes of a couple of regular season games wow. just because there was nobody available. Okay. So it does happen from time to time, but it's not ideal. You want to try to rest your stars so that they're ready for the fourth quarter because really, and I, I hate saying this, but the NBA, the first, second, and even sometimes the third quarter, teams are just kind of in a flow, right? right. But when the fourth quarter comes down, those last four minutes are usually whoever plays the best in those last four okay. is going to win the game. Yeah. So you want to manage the time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. Um, and that's okay. why you have regulated minutes for players. Okay. Interesting. I never knew that. That's, yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, I kind of leaked into this already. The NCAA teams have 30 seconds to take a shot. We're talking about the shot clock here. Right. The clock resets to 20 seconds if an attempted shot hits the rim. Okay. So in the NBA, it's 24 seconds to take a shot. The clock resets 14 seconds if an attempt hits the rim. Again, going back to what I said before, the reason that the NBA is 24 seconds is because they wanted originally a certain amount of possessions each game to hit a scoring mark okay. that they thought would be fun for fans to watch. Okay. College basketball, not so much. They like to stay closer to the book, and their scores are generally lower. Right. So that's where it's just a difference in preference. One is trying to make money off of the product, and they need high offensive caliber uh-huh. games to sell tickets sure. and the NCAA can make a lot more money just based off of brands. Would you rather sit and watch Duke score 50 or do you want to watch nobody you've ever heard of on the Trailblazers score 120? Right. You'd probably rather watch Duke. Okay. Um, that's my own thought in there, but yeah, the second difference the difference in the seconds comes down to what their hope is the game score, the end game score will be. Got it. So here's a question on the shot clock I've always wondered. A team takes a shot, it goes in the basket. Yeah. The other team then has to take the ball out of bounds, right, and yeah. throw it in. Does the shot clock start when the ball goes through the basket or no. when the first guy catches it in bounds? When you get the ball from one guy to the other. So the minute the point guard touches the ball. Okay. And that's why when you watch in college games and even in pro, if the ball goes through the basket, the guy takes it out of bounds, and the point guard will do kind of a rolling yeah. motion. Right. They'll roll the ball on the floor and then he'll walk next to it until he gets to the halfway line and then he'll pick it up real quick. When he actually picks it up in bounds, that's when the clock starts. And you'll know it next time you see it because it's really weird looking. Yeah. They roll the ball in bounds. Because the clock doesn't start until he touches it. Exactly. So the ball's making its way up the court and then the point guard will pick it up like right before the halfway line or the defender steps up. And that's why in college, you see so many presses where guys are defending the whole length of the court versus in the NBA, they like to just lean back and sit because they have more time they need to play. Okay. And is, would you say, and I know it 
I'm sure it has to do with TV and the length of the game and stuff. But in the NBA, 24 seconds doesn't seem like a lot to me. Is that is it rare that a team will have to chuck up a shot at the last second to not no, get No, it's hit? not that rare. Um, okay. A lot of offenses, like more recently, they have they don't have as hard of a time as you'd think. Like the NBA players are very, very skilled. Okay. You know, um, of all the teams in, you know, let's just say D1 college, right. only like 1% are making it to the NBA. I think it's 1.5 make it. Sure. So they are the cream of the crop and they don't have that much trouble. And coaches have offenses. For example, do you remember when Steve Nash won two MVPs Mm -hmm. back in the late 2000s? Right. They ran an offense called seven seconds or less, which means they wanted to have a good look at the basket in seven seconds or less of when the clock started and play at such a high rep. Yeah. They'd get more possessions. Okay. So there's certain teams that use the shot clock to their advantage. Houston Rockets were one of these teams. They wanted to get more time, just fired out, hit a three, do a quick shot, get a good look, take it, and then maybe get a couple extra possessions. Okay. Um, so hopefully that kind of gives you a good idea of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are some last minute heaves. You see them. <laughs> um, but yeah. NBA offenses are really, really good. Okay. And they do find ways to cons- to score consistently. And. And I think you told me this once, but before they even had a shot clock, some teams would just dribble around for minutes. Yeah, Yeah. so before the shot clock came into effect, one of the things that used to be said was flick of the wrist. And this was back in like 50s, I would say, before the shot clock came in. And what they do is they pull all of their guys just around the court. Remember, there's no three-point line, so it just looks like a big slab of wood. Yeah. And they would catch the ball with one hand and flick their wrist to another guy. And then they just keep moving the ball back and forth. So flicking your wrist, flick your wrist, flick your wrist. Not even dribble. No dribbling. Just flick it around. And then if a guy had to dribble, they're one hand dominant. They're not using both hands. So that's when you see like the Bob Cousy where he looks like he's pushing a cart. Yeah, right. That's where it comes from is Uh, that they really didn't want to dribble because no one was quite high quality at at it yet, yet. So they would just pass and pass and pass. And that's why you see a lot of games like in basketball ending six to seven because there's only, (laughs) you know, there's only two point shots and then free throws. And then the possessions can last three to four minutes a pop. So it was a tough game to watch. And it wasn't really until we started seeing the shot clock come that basketball became basketball. Was it when TV started broadcasting games, did they yeah. say, look, we need to have a better product? <laughs> or was it before that? I think it was just the idea that clubs were popping up. Okay. Um, you know, one of my favorites was, uh, there was this gentleman, George Lee, who was a friend of my grandfather's growing up. Mm-hmm. And he ended up playing for this team called the Denver Truckers. So, again, basketball teams were named after the company or the group sure. and where they came from. So the Pistons were a bunch of yeah. auto mechanics, right? Right, right. Um, Green Bay Packers were the Acme yep. Packers. Yep. So he worked for, I believe, Ford. Okay. And he worked for this company there. So they were the, the they Denver were the truckers. truckers. Yeah. And they ended up becoming the Nuggets eventually. Okay. He ended up playing in the NBA for the Pistons. And basically what happened was these club teams were becoming pros and these pros were becoming more recognizable. But the thing was, they had nothing on the college game. So they really needed to make it different okay. to draw more attention to themselves. Sure. And that's the the diet version of it, right, right? Right. But it really did help the game pick up momentum. Okay, good. 
All right. Um, okay. And now we got possession arrows and this jump one, balls. Yeah. So all right. Tell me about this one because this yeah. confuses the heck out of me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> this one's really interesting. So okay. in the NCAA, a team that loses the initial jump ball automatically gets possession at the next jump ball situation. So remember, there's a tip-off at the beginning of every basketball game. Okay. If you win the tip-off, you got the first possession of the basketball game, right? So that means the other team, if there's ever a situation where we can't tell who gets the ball, it goes to them. Okay. Because you had an initial advantage if you won the tip, they get the advantage at the back end. Okay. Now, a possession arrow on the scorer's table indicates which team currently claims the next possession of the ball. Okay, that's what that is. Yes. So, in this case, it just goes left, right, left, right. They just take turns when it's a jump ball, meaning it could be anybody. We really can't tell. There's no clear, visible fact this team has it over this team. Okay. Usually, it's when a scrum goes out on the floor and everybody's wrestling for it, and no one can tell who actually has it. Right. Right. Then it just goes to the team on the right or the team on the left, and they take turns going back and forth. Okay. Um, this is really important during playoffs or March Madness yeah. because it can really help decide the end of a game, and it leaves it up to chance or turns, if you want to describe it as that. Is right. it your turn to have the ball? Yeah. Um, but really, I actually prefer this sometimes over the NBA because it kind of adds another piece of strategy to coaching and it makes it really important. I was just going to ask, will a team, if they know they have the possession arrow, will will they deliberately do something? They'll try to tie the ball up. And what tie the ball up, for those that don't know, is if a player has possession of the ball, let's just say he's standing at the three-point line. I have the ball and you run up and then you grab the ball and we're pulling back and forth and neither of us can really grapple it away from each other. That's considered a jump ball situation. So then the ball would go back to the team with the arrow. Okay. So they'll lunge at you and they'll do funny ah, things. They yeah. don't do it as much because players are so much better at dribbling now. Sure. Um, but it happens. It definitely okay. happens. And I think it changes the way that people will play. You'll see more full court presses if they have possession. Um, okay. Just I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a way for you to put pressure for a turnover. Right. Or to get another jump ball or try to push them into a corner to tie it up. They're not necessarily looking for it, but it's definitely something that's in the back of your mind of if something were to happen and if we hustle, we're going to get the ball back because the arrow says so. Okay. So um, two questions and then we'll go on to the yeah, NBA. Yeah. I think it's better to do it this way too because <laughs> okay. the NBA is kind of, it's very, very basic in right. comparison. So in college, at the end of the first, well, at the end of, well, they only do halves, right? Yeah. So at the end of the if team A has a possession arrow at the end of the first half, I assume that they get the ball to start the second half, right? They don't do another jump ball, right? Yep, yep. Okay. Whoever or whoever loses the jump at the beginning of the game gets the ball gets the second the half. Ball. So a team could have they the, could have both. They could, could definitely have, have the both. ball I was going to say have possession two times in a row, right? To end the first half and to begin the second half. Yeah, right? yeah. And I guess that's the cleaner way of saying it because it really takes one play and turns it into two different situations where if you win the ball and or let's say if you lose it, you get the possession, but you're already going to start next with the possession arrow. Or right. I'm sorry, I'm messing up how to say this. Um, if you lose the tip off and you get the possession arrow, you're going to start the next quarter with the ball. Um, but most of the time the arrow will, 
it switches back even and forth out. throughout the game. So it really does even out, or it's never even used. There's some games I've watched where it's never even touched. Okay, and then if in college, if it goes to overtime or whatever, is do they jump then too? Yep, or? they jump okay. again. They jump again. Yep. Okay. So it's like starting the game starting over. Starting a game over. Okay, so now let's talk about the NBA yeah, and how they do it. Right? I think this is the easier way of doing it. I like the NCAA for the reasons I already said. But the team in the NBA that wins the initial jump ball automatically gets possession, right? Their point guard has the ball. He's dribbling it up the court right? to start the third quarter. Um, so if you win the ball at the beginning, oh. the math says that the team that loses the possession or the jump ball is probably going to end with the ball. Oh, You see what okay. I'm saying? Yes. Right. So because of the math... They assume if everything goes perfectly, the team that loses will have the last shot. Got it. Now, hmm, interesting. Yes, <laughs> it's tough to, and they assume they'll end it. And this is how drawn out it is. They'll end the second quarter with the ball, and they'll have the the last shot of the fourth quarter with the ball. Okay. All jump ball situations are resolved between real live jumps. Okay. So it's not just a saying, it's an actual thing. So this is the funny thing where I remember seeing like, I don't know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and <laughs> yeah, Spud Webb yeah. jump or whatever. Exactly. You know. <laughs> and it's so pure. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Great. I love it. Yeah. I love watching it. It doesn't happen as often as you think in the NBA. Um, one of the things that oftentimes confuses people is during a jump ball, they jump at the free throw line of whatever side of the court they're on. Because okay. if you look at a basketball court, there's the rounded free throw line, outer line, mm -hmm. and then sometimes there's a dashed line that makes right. it a circle. Yep. That's the jumping circle, okay. just as there is in the center of the court, just as there is on the opposite free throw line. Right. That's where they determine the jump ball. Okay, so they'll jump there, and yep. obviously the the player who's... You, you stand facing the basket you're going towards, yes. right? Or you're yes. shooting towards. Okay, got it. Yeah, and there's weird strategies on how to get it, but I think the NBA, it really is a free-for-all in that one, you, which is kind of yeah. fun to watch. I was going to say, do you like the jump ball every yeah. time, or do you like the possession area? If you had to pick one, and both NCAA and NBA had to do one. I have better memories with the arrow. Okay. Because it adds a certain quality to the game of strategy and of of this preconceived, like, we need to be careful because we don't have the we possession. Don't have the possession area, right? And when you're looking at the NBA, and again, one game I can think of is the Celtics versus the Clippers. This was back in I think 2015, 2014. Okay. Isaiah Thomas, not the Hall of Famer, right? Versus DeAndre Jordan jumped ball. He's five foot nine. DeAndre's seven feet tall. Who do you think won? <laughs> uh, DeAndre. Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> And so it takes a lot of this strategy away from the game of even if Isaiah Thomas hustles and hustles and hustles and right. gets in the scrappy play, he's not going to get rewarded for the hard work that he's done because right. the other guy's going to be able to outjump him just because of his pure ability. Right. Now, it can be awesome when you see two centers jump or two point guards jump or right. you know maybe a bouncy shooting guard versus a center because those guys can get up too. Mm -hmm. um, but more times than not, the game that I like better is the one with the possession arrow just because of how fluid it is and how certain it is every time. I would agree with that. So yeah. I, I really like it. And I also think it's never bothered March Madness, really. Yeah. You know, 64-some games or how many of our games, games there are. Right. Um, 
it never seems to be brought up or become never, a complaint. I've never seen a it a just kind of works decided on the yeah. Position or if it is decided, it was decided and everyone was like, and I get it. Was fine with yeah, it. Yeah, I get it. Right, this right. you know we took advantage of that rule at the beginning. You take advantage of it at the end, and yeah. that's just kind of how it fell. It all kind um, of evens out. Yeah, so. yeah, of course. So let's talk about fouls because oh. I <laughs> oh I tried reading about this and yeah. got a headache and had to lay down. So. There's a lot of weird stuff, so I'll try to keep it kind of light. But okay. in the NCAA, players are disqualified from the game after five individual fouls. Okay. Um, a combination of personal and technical fouls. So if I hit you while you're shooting, that's a foul. If I'm moving my feet on a screen, that's a foul, right? And you get five of them. Now, in the NBA, players are disqualified from the game after six fouls. Okay. Again, combination of personal and technical fouls or two technical fouls together. Okay. So, really, let's boil this down because we could go into, like, what is a foul, what isn't a foul right. compared to the NCAA and NBA. NCAA has the shorter game. Logically, they have less fouls. Right. NBA has a longer game and is star dependent. They want to keep those stars on the court. So they have more fouls that way. Sure. They also have a rapport. They're, they're performing for an audience. Right. So they want to make sure that the game is somewhat clean. This is, again, simplified. I don't want people right. jumping in the chat and being like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but you want to make sure that the game has a, you know, a certain rain on it. Yes. And that's why you got those technical fouls. If you commit two, you're gone. And Draymond Green, many people think that, you know, when he kicked LeBron and got his second technical foul in 2016, that cost the Warriors another championship. Well, this is just a part of the drama, right? You want to make sure that players are playing the game and they're not committing, you know, atrocious acts. And one of the main antagonists of this is your favorite team, maybe of all time, the Detroit Bad Boys. Right. 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 The Jordan rules. The first foul counts, but everything (laughs) after it doesn't. Love that. (laughs) So they want to make sure that they had a bonus call to say like, hey, Bill Lambeer, even though you didn't commit the foul, you can't throw somebody on the ground. Right. Um, So it's kind of like an enforcer. It's a tool that referees can pull out and say, you can't be doing that. So let me ask you this. Oh, First I should all, say college oh, has it too. Okay. So there's the pers- what I call, well, not what I call, but there's the personal fouls and then there's technical fouls. Two different things, right? So if I um, lean into somebody, that's a yeah. personal foul. Yeah. A technical foul is if I do something bad. Like if I... Yeah. I think put, of it as know. like recklessness okay. or endangerment. Those are the two words that are used, right? So if I take a jump shot and you hit my hand... That's a foul. A if personal I, foul. Yeah. Okay. If I take a jump shot and you throw yourself into me or underneath me as I'm in the air, that's a technical in my mind because where am I going to land? Right. I'm going to land on top of you and I'm probably going to get hurt. Okay. Um, one of the most common technical fouls is pulling somebody down when they're trying to get a free throw or a dunk oh, because they're running full speed sure. and now you're ripping them yeah. out of the air and you're throwing them to the ground. Or pushing somebody out of bounds, or um, you know, one that I think is really common is is fighting. Right. Right. It doesn't have to be in play. Coaches get technical fouls too. Sure. So it's again, it's just a way to police the game and make sure that there's good behavior in a very emotional sport. Right. So, getting back to the difference between NCAA and NBA, 
is it pretty much just five versus six fouls? But in my opinion, yeah, like that's okay. a good way of breaking it down. The fouls are pretty much the same, and so are the technicals. Okay. I think just some are used more than others. Like there's more techs in the NBA just because there's more games and more minutes and okay more you know vocabulary yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better word. Will you see at least one technical foul per game, like for sure? Or oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, there are certain teams that they're more common. Like I remember the Kings back from like 2015 through 2018 when they had DeMarcus Cousins. Mm-hmm. You saw one every game. He right. led the league in technicals. Draymond Green used to get a lot, but not every game. I wouldn't say every single one you see some sort of technical. Um, but there certainly are games that get heated. Like uh, back in the day, 2015, really 14 through 17, Warriors Clippers. A lot of technicals. Okay. There's not a lot of love there. Okay. Um, Rockets, Clippers, Rockets, uh, Warriors. I'm trying to think of a couple more. I mean, Boston used to get a bunch yeah. of technicals back in the '80s against sure. Philly. They used to get some against New York. So, so it, it, you can look at just rivalries in general, yeah, and those are generally where you're going to find a lot of them. That's where you're going to see them. So, and I know that, and I think this is still true today. But I remember when I was watching more basketball, <laughs> you would have guys coming off the bench and their job was to follow. Yeah, they're and enforcers. They're it enforcers. Was a, it was a job. So is it like, is part of their game plan, Bill Ambeer, you're going to follow out. Yeah. Like they want him to follow out. Well, yeah, right? and there was like uh, Charles Oakley. was like right. one of the original guys that just could not exist anymore in the league because okay. he was just coming in. He really wasn't, he couldn't really shoot. Right. And couldn't play basketball. Really <laughs> couldn't play basketball that well. Like just smart. He knew right. where to be and he could defend. Okay. And then he would come in and he'd body you. Um, by design. By right? design. Okay. Yeah. They would try. The goal was to wear other guys down. Okay. Especially smaller guards because back in the eighties, I'm glad you chose like this era, right? Yeah. Of the eighties is Magic Johnson was an incredible thing that occurred because he was six ten. Right. And he was as big as your bruisers and just as strong. But and he, he was a guard. Exactly. Yeah. And then Isaiah Thomas is six foot one, mm-hmm. and you could push him around. Mark Price didn't last long. He got right. beat up. I remember him. Um, yeah. B.J. Armstrong, although you could probably argue he's more of a shooting guard, got beat up. Um, John Stockton was a miracle. He made it as long as he did, but he was also considered dirty, right? Yeah. Because he would fight back at you. Right. There's just not a long-running history of these smaller point guards lasting. Yeah. Because the game wasn't suited for them to dominate the way it is now. Okay. It's played in this thing called the half court, which means you set the offense up once you cross the line. Offenses now, you can set it up at any time. Anytime. Um, and it would give the bruisers a chance to come in and smack you around a little right. bit, especially if you drove uh, to yeah. the rim. You know, And that's why you see guys like Danny Ainge and, right. and DJ, even when you watch the tape, it's weird how they're moving because they almost don't want to be in the lane. And then when they do get in the lane, there's a lot of scrappiness. And they're really relying on like Kevin McHale and right. Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Bill Walton and Weedman and all these bigger guys to kind of carry out that yeah. role. And their job is just make the entry pass. Was Dennis Rodman a dirty player? Or... I don't think he okay. was in totality. Like when I look at him in the in the Detroit years, he's just flat out at like outworking people yeah and yeah. it they he's making them look bad sure but he's outworking them okay when he started to slide and people are going to get mad at me on this and i'm sorry <laughs> but listen i've watched a lot of games and 
Sure. From what you read, and especially in some of the books, he started to take a dive around 98 and really started to slide. And that was when he was prompted. He went to Vegas for a week. Right. He just disappeared. Yeah. And he needed that break. But he was physically just worn down. I was going to say, yeah, he was probably he, in his yeah. 30s, right? Yeah, I mean, and he, yeah, he played a hard style of basketball. Yeah. And when he, the Bulls, when that ended, he was gone. Like, right. I, I can't remember if he went to Dallas. No, he went to Dallas. Then he went to, was it San Antonio? And then the Bulls traded for him. Okay. Because he was on his way out of the league, and the Bulls picked him up, and it worked. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But I don't consider him a dirty player. I think he played to the standards of the other players. Right. And then when he got to the Bulls, he understood he wasn't Detroit Rodman, but he could still do something, and one of those was be a nuisance. Okay. And then nuisance became, you know, agitator, agitator became aggravator, aggravator became pest, and pest became (laughs) we're rolling on the floor like WWE with Carl Malone. So I I think, in a sense, there's years where he could be considered dirty, um, but not compared to a John Stockton or okay. or a Reggie Miller or, sure. or just these guys that yeah. really found ways to use the rules in their advantage and make you foul out or get you out of the game or right. or make John Starks try to choke you. Like yeah. there's other things, right. you know. There's other so things. If we had to pick, and and we'll move on to the next one after yeah. this. But if you had to pick two or three players playing today, that would you say are they're strictly enforcers or are there oh. none left in the league? I don't think there's any. Okay. I it's, mean, it's just I th- not what they do anymore, right? No. I mean, the closest I can think of to an enforcer, and it isn't close, is like a Jakob Pertl that comes in. He's not much of a shooter, right. but he's really good around the rim, and he can rebound. He can kind of defend, block shots, be a big body, and plug up the okay. lane. But the thing is, he's like Bill Wellington of that era. You right. know, Bill Wellington's not a, an enforcer. He's a skilled center that's got a lot of great abilities inside outside. So hmm. I don't okay. really think there's room for him to exist. Right. It's the game has changed so you much. You need to shoot threes, you need yeah. to have finesse, you need to be quick, you need to handle. Yeah. There's just too many things. The last guy that I can think of that was like a legitimate excuse me. <clears throat> enforcer or or had shades of it might be it can't be Wallace. It, there's somebody oh, after Wallace. Wallace. Yeah, Ben okay. Wallace was in there. Um, but Ben Wallace was good around the rim. Like, right. Prime Wallace was such a good defender. I don't know if you can call him an enforcer. Was Barkley? Was Sir Charles? No. Not really? No? No. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of... Captain Jack is one I think of right away. Okay. But he was just a really loud voice. Right. And then Marcus Canby was oh. really talented. Yes. And you did not mess with Marcus Canby. People were scared of him. Okay. But he was so, still a phenomenal basketball player. Like, he right. started on multiple playoff teams. Yeah. So, it's it's tough for me to think of anybody within the past couple of years that truly was just a goon. Hmm. I guess Zaza Pachulia is the last one, maybe? Okay. But again, he started as a center for the Warriors, and he, he's one of the reasons Kawhi Leonard played for the Raptors, because ah, he got underneath him when sure. he was trying to land, and he was kind of considered dirty. Yeah. I wouldn't call him an enforcer. Okay. So, yeah, it's been a long time. It's been right. a really long time. Yeah. All right, moving on. So, yeah, um, sorry. I got can, into my nerd zone. I know we zone. could talk about this forever. Yeah, so. you got a problem when I'm sitting over here. <laughs> All right. So, again, we're talking about the differences between the NCAA. I say Division One, but I, I assume all Division 
in basketball yeah. play the same rules? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So NCAA versus the NBA. The next one is the three-point line. And I always have questions about this because I know they're different distances away. Yeah. But give me a little bit on that. What's the story yeah. on that? So what the common story is, is the NBA, they want bigger. It's a performance game, right? So you want deeper three-point shots. You okay. want it to be more difficult. Um, but let me read the rule first. Okay. The NCAA's three-point line is 22 feet and one quarter uh, and three-fourths inches from the center of the basket and 21 feet and seven-eighths seven inches from the corners of the court. Okay. NBA three-point line. It's a little bit deeper. It's 23 feet, nine inches from the center of the basket. In most places... And 22 hmm. feet away from the corners of the court. Okay. So corners are a little further away in the NBA. They're a lot more narrow. And the three-point line is further back. It's most predominant when you look at the free-throw line bubble. You can see a good foot beyond. Right. In the NCAA, it's only a couple inches beyond the three-point line bubble. And then in high school, it is, it lines up oh, with the high school. With the, oh, yeah. Okay. So the higher up you go, the further back the line gets. Okay. But I think it's all for different reasons. Now, a lot of people can say different background and research on this, but it comes down to college is most similar to international, FIBA, oh. the Federation of International Basketball Association, the Olympics, in okay. other words. Sure. Because their distance is 22.58 feet. So college is in line with what FIBA is doing. Oh, okay. So that's the standard court now in international competition as well in college athletics. NBA is deeper because they wanted bigger shots. They wanted a more performance art. And they wanted it to be more challenging. The corners are also more narrow because in college basketball, it's obviously not as narrow and it's an easier shot to make from the corner than it is from the full distance three. See, I was going to ask that too. Yeah. Like, if you're shooting a three from either side of the court, you don't have the backboard to. No, use, but you don't have to get. You don't have to have as deep a range. True. So you can put a guy in the corner like a PJ Tucker that's not a knockdown shooter everywhere, and you can make somebody a specialist from the corner. That's why there's always a guy there in college. It's okay. almost exclusive in college where you have your three or two guard pull out to the corner. So if a player is really good at that shot, does that mean he usually is not very good at threes from other areas? Or... You'd be surprised. They're usually, that's the, those two spots are their favorite. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they See, do would, like that. I would think um, that would be the hardest place, but what do yeah, I right? Well, and if you go back and watch guys like P.J. Tucker, P.J. Tucker's made a living off of the corner threes. Okay. Um, it's not true everywhere. Obviously, you want guys to be well-rounded. But the thing that I've noticed with the corner threes is that's where you put your center or your four, your power forward now in modern okay. basketball because it's a very it's, – it's closer to a mid-range shot really than a three-point shot in a lot of ways. Oh, wow. And at least in feel when you're sure. out there, it feels different than a true three-point from okay. the college line, okay. at least in my opinion. Sure. Um, so you could put a guy that's probably not – doesn't have the deepest range and put him there – and if he has a good form, hmm. he'll be able to hit that shot consistently. Okay. Um, but overall, college, from college to international to pro, 
It just keeps moving the line back in relative for difficulty and to make sure that the games are fair. Now, I've seen players who will drain a three, but they're, and this is in the NBA, but they're still three, four feet behind the line. Yeah, yeah. They're getting crazy. better. So are they moving the line back? What's the story? Do they want to? Should they? I think there's been talk about not moving the line back, but they wanted to put a four-point line in. <laughs> Okay. Um, I'm not crazy about it, but okay. maybe I'm the curmudgeon on yeah. this one. Um, there's been a lot of like 3v3 basketball that's really taken over. It's now in the Olympics, but there's some 3.3 leagues that actually have a four-point dot. They'll have three spots on the court oh. where if you shoot it from that dot, it's four points. Really? Okay. So then it's like a situational deal where sure. it's coming down to the wire. You have a minute left to play. I'm going to run a play to get a four-point shot and take, you know, go for the gamble. And right. it's fun when you got three people because yeah. there's a lot more space and you're more likely sure. to pull it off. Sure. Um, okay. I don't really know what to do. If I was the commissioner of the NBA and we're like, we're thinking about putting in a four-point dot or a four-point line, mm-hmm. it, it's a tough conversation because I want to see Steph, I want to see KD, I want to see Clay Thompson, I want to see these guys that can't shoot it from that deep encouraged to do so. Right. But at the same time, I'm interested to see what the repercussions would be on the game if, you know, two possessions is equal to one. Right. Um, right. In some regard of scoring two baskets for two points and then taking a four-point shot, would offenses change? Because oh, they I certainly they did would. with the three-point line. Yeah. Um, what would that degree go to with the four-point line? Right. So, And then when do we stop adding lines, right? right. It seems kind of <laughs> ridiculous to go to five or six yeah, or seven. Right. Um. So it's a conversation I think that the NBA just really doesn't want to have because I think this is a great place for basketball. It's exciting. It's fun. It's growing. There's more players internationally. It's become more popular than it's ever been. Um, I mean, the best player in the world right now is from Greece. Mm -hmm. And I would argue maybe the second or third best player in the world is from Slovenia. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's... Yeah. Awesome to see that happen and to know that basketball isn't in a healthy place overall. Um, so maybe it's better not to mess with it until needed. Right. Like they did with the three-point line. They needed the three-point line right. when it came in. Right. Um, the league was under a lot of stress to stay open. Right. And they needed something new and the three-point line came in. It's perfect, yeah. And it was the perfect addition. So for college then, do you think... It should move back to the NBA line. Or I think maybe... the players would love it. <laughs> you think so? I think the players would like it, but I don't think it's needed. I like it being okay. shorter because if the games are shorter, um, if the halves are shorter, I think oh. the line should be shorter because it makes it more palpable when you get that three okay. and that look. It Plus, they're, they're still learning a lot yeah. of those shooters in college are not NBA-level shooters. They're rare. I was just going to ask that. So it's better to have that line a little closer. The same reason you wouldn't ask a high schooler to play on an NBA court for a state title. You'd want them to play on a high school court because that's where they're used to playing. Right, right. Um, And that's really where their development is. Even though it's only about a foot and a half. It's a big foot and a half. That's a big foot and a half. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it took me about two years, and I play basketball pretty actively. And I I wasn't a three-point shooter in high school. But it took me about a year and a half to two years to really feel confident outside on the rim of the three-point line. Okay. Like where I really? could come moving off of a screen and catch okay. the ball and fire. Okay. Um, because it is, it's a difference, right? Yeah. And NBA players have said this in the past when they go to the Olympics. 
they need to do a lot of shoot arounds because that line being so much closer, even though it's only about a foot closer, right? It does change how they approach oh, their stroke, right? I bet it does. Yeah. Um, because if you ask any NBA player, or you ask any shooter in general, it's repetition, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the same routine. So you're used to releasing it from the same point on the floor at this point and that and that blah blah blah. Right. Um. So if you have to tweak it just a bit, it really throws you off. Yeah. It takes a while well, to kind of come back from. Yeah. All right, so let's get to the last difference that I wrote down here, awesome. which is the width of the key. So the key is oh, the lane, right? The yeah, key yeah, lane. yeah. So tell me about that and why they're different. <laughs> so I actually don't have a straightforward answer on this one. Okay. This is a good one that you've stumped me on. The key in the NCAA is 12 feet wide. Right. The NBA, the key is 16 feet wide. Now, for the NBA, I have a more direct answer. Okay. And the answer is Wilt Chamberlain. Um, Wilt Chamberlain used to dunk on the college level court they used to be really narrow and he could dunk from outside the lane so he could get fouled and go to the free throw there was a bunch of rules set up around the paint and that he could just jump over it right and they didn't love that they wanted to make that zone more restricted and they wanted to make sure will chamberlain didn't camp out right next to the basket so remember that episode we did where we talked about you can't stay in the paint yeah. for a certain amount of Defensive time. Defensive three seconds. Yep. That's where it comes from. They oh, okay. wanted to expand it and make it bigger so that it was harder for centers who ran the league for, you know, right. darn near 55, 60 years. Yeah. Um, we just passed our 75 year with the NBA. They could just camp out right next to the basket. Well, now we're going to push that area that you can camp out further away. Okay. So you have to make an effort to move and post up and do basketball the way it's intended okay. and not just camp right next to the lane and then dunk over the little guy next to you. So they changed that for one player. I for mean, one and probably a couple I, others. Yeah, but, but yeah. one was enough for us yeah. to realize like Will Chamberlain is he's just different and yeah. they somehow they knew this is just the way it's going. Or they were like, we have to fix this because this player is too dominant. We right. can't have these games going this way. Yeah. And it's amazing. You only want to, you know, like one championship and mm. Bill Russell won so many. Right. Um, right. Little dig there. Not going to lie. <laughs> uh, but yes, the key yeah. and the, the width of the paint itself is because they want a certain style of play. And that is if you do have a center that's going to post up, they want to see a traditional post up. Got it. Um, and in the NCAA, those kids, again, they're not fully developed. They haven't gotten all the skills yet. They're more comfortable having a guy a little bit closer to the basket when he posts up. And three-point line is shorter, so therefore you don't have to take up as much space. So you don't see it as a problem in the NCAA that the key is still only 12 feet wide. No, it's like our talk about the possession arrow. It's never something that people have complained about. There's never been a player, even Wilt Chamberlain Hmm. or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or... um, I, I almost went to Oscar Robertson, but right. I, I'll hold off on that one. Sure. Um, that we were like, hey, this guy is too good to be playing right. on this court. Right. Um, most of the time, those guys take off before it's even time to change it. Right. Yeah. Will Chamberlain went to the Harlem Globetrotters yeah. uh, out of Kentucky. So I like where the paint's at in both. I think it's fair. I actually like that the NBA kind of pushed it out a little further. I think it makes center play really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's pushed them to become like a Marcus Gasol, where he has to be able to shoot mid-range and three points. He can post up. He's got a pass. Nikola Jokic is like yeah. the model of this, right? Sure. And it kind of encourages big men to think outside of the box and become something like Kevin McHale always says, 
short and talented loses to big and talented <laughs> every single time. No matter how small or talented yeah, you might true. be, right? Yeah. And to encourage guys to get better and better and better. And Nikola Jokic is insane, like what he can do from the wow. big man position just because they're allowing him more space and he has to take advantage of that or right. he has to find a way to exist in that. He can't just pop his butt right down next right. to the basket and post up. Right. He can shoot, he can pass, he can do all these things, and now he's kind of like the climax or the pinnacle of what we've seen out of big men. I think he's one of the best since Bill Walton wow. in, in terms of that sure. ideal center. Right. Okay, so two questions on this. Number yeah. one, do you see them widening it anymore, or do you think this is pretty much as good as it gets? I, I actually like it where it is. <laughs> okay. I hope they don't, um, because I still think in the NBA – just to focus in, there's still a reason to play, to post up. I think if you push it out wider and wider, it It'll takes be away. Really tough. Okay. And then, does international use the 12 foot like NCAA? Do I know? was actually looking that up. Can I can yeah. I take a minute? But yeah. um, I don't know what the width. And then the other question I had, and I think that I know the answer, but the depth of the key is the same in both leagues, right? So the distance yeah. between the free throw line to the baseline is the same right so yeah. it's just the width that's different yes um, FIBA is 16 feet so same 16. as the NBA okay yeah. NBA yep. mm. um, and I will say FIBA is like it takes pieces from both the NCAA it and sounds NBA like a, yeah. my favorite NCAA or FIBA rule is you can swat the ball off the top of the cylinder <laughs> right. which you can't do in either NCAA and NBA so maybe we'll do like a chart of all three yeah, later that'd be fun. Um, but yeah FIBA is it's a kind of a wild west and they do weird things with the lane there's some like triangle lanes whoa yeah it looks really odd wow um, okay very old-fashioned lane. Lanes used to look somewhat like that sure uh, I remember and, that now. Yeah, yeah they had like horizontal or lines that went out basically like a triangle yeah um yeah. That I don't know. I'll have to do research on, but they still play that way in like Israel. I think Israel wow. still has those, and uh, a couple spots in Greece, just because the gym was designed that way. Yeah. Well, this is great. I mean, I I learned a lot about <laughs> the differences between NCAA. I know there were some, but yeah, you made me nerd a little too much. <laughs> I might have to come back and edit it. <laughs> no, but, but yeah, thanks for going through these. These are these are no, great, and I it's always have... good to to revisit this because this is stuff like some of these. I don't remember the whole story. Like the right. shot clock, there is a person that is responsible in the NBA for having it. And it was like an Atlanta Hawks owner. Oh. And I'll have to go back and find okay. his name. Sure. Because he went through this whole mathematical equation to figure out exactly how much time each team should get to get that game to a score of 90. Right. Um, right. For example. Sure. So there's a lot of history that runs really deep with just some of the most basic rules. And wow. basically, you know, how this show got started. Very so, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, any parting thoughts? Anything you want to review? Mm, no, I think that's it. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you for letting me do this. Thanks for sure. compiling this list. It's always fun when I get to... I get to throw one at you a little bit here. Yeah. Um, but it, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with the show or listen to past podcasts, visit our website at thatsadumrule.com. Otherwise, tune in next time for another Dumb Rule.